Perfect. All right. Today, we're joined by a very special guest, someone that we've wanted on the pod for a long time, um, Jack of the Perfume Nationalist. Welcome. Welcome. Hi. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're excited to have you. Um, I mean, I've definitely been listening to your podcast for a long time. I wanted to say I, I always love when you talk about um, working in hospitality. I used to work at a Hilton hotel for like two years in college. Um, oh, I was nice. a, Yeah, I was a valet attendant. Um, so I, I mostly like smelled like the inside of people's cars a whole lot. <laughs> um, and you definitely get to like just take in a lot of information about people's lifestyles <laughs> that way. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was it's it's interesting. I was wondering, like, working in hospitality, like, is that something that exacerbated like your interest in perfume and stuff? Um, working in hospitality for the last more than half a decade definitely yeah. uh, caused me to want to uh, self-actualize in some other way and channel my creative and en- energies and all this like useless perfume and pop culture knowledge that I have into something else because it was just so boring. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, having a regular unglamorous job like that certainly gives you, uh, experience and something to talk about and, you know, watching, watching Evita, I felt like a traitor <laughs> because I recently quit my hospitality job. Yeah. And I feel like, I feel like when the, you know, the socialists or whatever, all mad yeah. at her, um, feeling they betrayed her. So, cause now I'm like, uh, you know, living this lazy, lazy life the last few weeks of just podcasting. No, yeah, that's that's totally, I, I actually relate to that because I recently quit my tech job and I've just been like, I'm just in between jobs right now. So I just feel so unstructured. I'm like, do I, I guess I wake up at nine now. Is that, I don't know what to do. I'm like, I have I no know. one to hold me accountable. I guess I'll just wander. Yeah, take a walk, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, and an invigorating walk in the fresh yeah. air. Yeah, my only goal seems to be um, uh, to like read all the books on my shelf right now. But oh, yeah. uh, so nice. I'm sure I'll I'll get bored and um, find something else to do. Who knows? I keep seeing I'll I keep seeing these terrible ads for Amazon warehouses on Tubi where I watch everything, mm-hmm. um, and they're really depressing. And I keep uh, I have this like uh, impending doom feeling that. Uh, I've chanced fate too much and I'll be funneled mm-hmm. into an Amazon warehouse, but uh, we'll see. Right now I'm uh, living the dream of just waking up and like uh, going straight into the bathtub and reading The Secret Garden with a pot, oh. of, pot of coffee. So mm, so nice. <laughs> have you have you listened to The Secret Garden soundtrack like from the musical? No, I haven't seen uh, or listened to any other version of The Secret Garden except for the 1993 one. It's it's quite beautiful, the musical. I really like it. Yeah, the, the also... book is shocking. The book is, uh, really is. straight-up pornography. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's filth. It's D.H. Lawrence filth for children. <laughs> it's all just, like, salacious descriptions of, like, fondling bulbs, pulling back yeah. folds, beaks. And it's clearly <laughs> intentional. Like, I feel like Francis Hodgson Burnett probably uh, had some uh, ancient naughty interest in pornography at the time, but um yeah we just did that last week on on our pod so i've been living in the secret garden world 
Nice. The last great taboo is children and sexuality. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Right. One has to be careful. That's where that's where the cancel reels come from. Uh, yeah. When they come for you, yeah. Uh, you also have a past in the theater as well. You were famously in a production of uh, Little Women at your high famously. school. Famously, yes. <laughs> um, yes, I'm an award-winning actor, as a matter of fact. <laughs> a I, brush with the stage. A <laughs> brush with the stage. I love acting. Um, yeah. I would have continued acting if I could. Um, my like best friend slash uh, mentor figure all through high school was my high school theater teacher who... Mm-hmm. Uh, just basically got me into almost everything that I'm into, including perfume. And Mm. she had such a weird and interesting and anachronistic way of doing high school plays. Um, I was in drag multiple times. Uh, The Little Women production, which was uh, all male, except for um, Lori. Uh, Lori was played by a girl, a very masculine girl, butch girl. Um, but I was Amy, the youngest sister. We all had beards. This was like 2007, 2006. Uh, so like well before everyone was doing like bearded drag or be- drag became yeah. this massive thing. Um, but uh, yeah, like the uh, 1994 uh, Winona Ryder Little Women was one of the biggest inspirations on me. Um, mm-hmm. And I was always obsessed Definitely. with the story. And uh yeah, there's a like there was like a knockdown drag out like wig beating uh fight. Damn. Uh Joe or not Joe, uh the sickly one. Um Aim, uh, Beth. Beth. Yeah. Gentle yeah. Beth. Uh yeah, gentle gentle <laughs> Beth when she died, the, this like bladder full of water just like, like splattered out on stage from under her dress. We played uh nice. Yoko Ono uh during the intermissions to make people uncomfortable. Um yeah, it was a it was a gay old time. Wow. There was a production in college that I worked on called Women that was like a mashup of HBO's Girls with Little Women. And it's it's very like liberal feminist, but um, I I quite enjoyed working on that production. It was, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot yeah. of like uh, contemporary references and such. Oh, and and yeah, then you're like, and then you're like, am I a little woman? <laughs> exactly and, and you see how like all of these like this this archetypal story like constantly is coming back in culture it's mm-hmm. oh yeah totally no I I always loved acting because um I have the extremely kind of unlikable combination of zero stage fright like I'll do anything on a stage that doesn't scare me at all I feel mm-hmm. like I have like total control of an audience if they can't say anything but then i have like uh you know severe social anxiety about like meeting up with people i know well one-on-one to talk um so yeah I, i'll do anything on stage yeah. i've never cared about that so yeah really I'm, I'm the same way combo yeah <laughs> i'm the same way like when i was in theater school like i was always the girl who had to like roll around naked be the rape victim i had to get beat up by people like be all these in these very degrading oh, and then me like too. i got <laughs> tied to the chair and came yeah. there and got my eyes gouged out, oh my gouged yep. out with lingonberry jam uh blindfolded i did I was basically nude. I was just yeah. wearing like a little speedo and Love's Labor's Lost. Um, yeah. 
but never then had like any problem. <laughs> but then like when I have to like talk to my professor or something like I have to go and meet someone for coffee like a friend I'm like oh god like I what, what do I look like like is it am I being weird or you know like how yeah. am I perceived it's very strange because they can talk back. Exactly. You don't have control. Yeah, over them. Exactly. They're not a silent audience. Yeah, I guess uh, it's about like the control <laughs> thing. But yeah, I mean, acting is all about like uh, the relinquishing of control, I guess, because it's just exactly. about being uninhibited and like no in inhibitions whatsoever. You don't get yeah, that and, a like, lot. It, it's so funny because like it's always been so easy for me to do anything on stage, but like really conventionally like hot popular people are always like oh I couldn't give a speech oh I couldn't do no public speaking that's my biggest fear so they're like super impressed that you like are willing to do all this stuff so you get those kind of like points with uh hot people like that yeah exhibitionism points do you buy the or like buy into the like the whole like all podcasters are basically like theater kids essentially Oh, not at all. The, that term theater <laughs> kids, I, I don't think it has much specific meaning anymore. It's just kind True. of some, like people throw it around at like AOC or whatever. And they're describing a, a certain quality. Like there's that certain kind of meme hatred of types yeah. like Anne Hathaway, mm-hmm. um, where they're a little a little too confident and a little too prissy for people for everyone to like them that much. Um, but theater kid I don't know um right like there it's are plenty li- of super boring podcasts that don't catch on because yeah. the <laughs> conversations are dull or right they're not creative but right you know. it's just kind of like a shorthand for something that is usually specific in somebody that you know most people aren't able to like pinpoint down and it's kind of different in everyone but it's it's also people on Twitter are always levying that term yeah. at everyone. And it's like if you're on Twitter, <laughs> yes. you want attention. Like right. it's a it's a video game that interacts with your real life where you're where like attention is quantified by like numbers that go up. <laughs> like yeah, that right. you can watch go, go up. So you know, it's really like lady doth protest too much type mm-hmm. thing when most yeah. of the time when people call someone else a theater kid I definitely want to write like a book though about the theater kid and like how it's been become like a proxy in this culture war and I want to call it how would you define it the how would you define the term um I tend to like say that it's someone who like toes a party line that's very like liberal and uh very narcissistic in a sense and once Mm -hmm. is loud and is singing songs like from show tunes at like six o'clock in the morning in the choir room yeah I guess my yeah I guess my definition (laughs) would be like I guess similar to that but I guess I usually think of it as just in general someone's inner child that can be you know defined as a theater kid archetype sort of I think a lot of it is you know the most unfashionable things at any given moment are the most like recently fashionable Mm -hmm. uh, where no Mm -hmm. one has reappropriated it so that it's cool so I think that the glee moment is still recent enough that Mm -hmm. it's uncomfortable for everyone um Mm -hmm. where they have a specific image of like just gay little kids doing glee uh being indoctrinated by that but there was an aspect even though I was 
involved in theater in high school and loved it and liked all my friends in there I was uncomfortable with the the musical theater and the show choir side of it yeah um and I everybody wanted me to do the musicals because I can sing okay um but I refused to do the musicals and because I didn't want to be a musical theater gay Mm -hmm. and um then the show choir side of it was even worse where it was like all the kind of Christian closet case kids who have like just like surrounded by girls who say no he isn't actually gay he's just kind of different this was how it was in like the late 2000s now everyone's gay but um yeah there was even then there was a an aspect that was hard to get over for me Mm -hmm. and I'm a kid who was like obsessed with like Rodgers and Hammerstein musicals in like second and third grade like watching those all the time Mm-hmm. Rodgers and Hammerstein has been making a comeback in my brain because like all throughout college everybody was like oh they're just dead old white men and now I'm like going back and like looking at the lyrics and the music and it's like s- this sweeping emotion and the, I'm and, and especially when you compare them to like Sondheim like the, the the differences are so stark and I just, I, yeah, I'm well, obsessed. Oh with yeah. Mm-hmm. And above all, well, first, first of all, if anyone says something is dead white men, then you should immediately go explore True. it uh, because yeah. that means they have bad taste and don't know what's going on. Um, but uh, the Rogers and Hammerstein stuff is just from a time when Hollywood was a well-oiled assembly, assembly line creating exceptional products uh, intended and designed to please everyone in every way aesthetically emotionally uh it's just movies from that era are just superior to the last many decades of product because there were there were smart people in control (laughs) um (laughs) but but like they're I mean they're so stunning it's so weird when I think of being like a third grader and sitting down and watching The King and I which is like three hours long over and over again Mm -hmm. Uh, like kids have this weird capacity to like not actually get bored like the stereotype of like children is uh that they have short attention spans and can't handle anything but also kids find like anything that you put in front of them fascinating (laughs) hours of fun (laughs) (laughs) yeah just hours of fun so yeah watching uh yul brenner uh, uh jump around dressed as a sultan or whatever you know it's south pacific and oklahoma and carousel i liked all of those we had a real nice clam bake what is that state fair um (laughs) yeah Yeah. Yeah. oklahoma had a really uh interesting like minimalist revival that just came out that's like very psychological Mm -hmm. which is maybe (laughs) it's it's, yeah it's yeah but it's like touring the country right now yeah yeah Yeah. i hope that i hope that roger hammerstein like has like a a revival like in the culture at large it absolutely should and i was even into like the like late 60s by the time the musicals got really like brown and ugly and mm-hmm. weren't that popular like Dr. Doolittle with Rex Harrison oh, yeah. also yeah. three hours long <laughs> and just brown 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 and I would watch that over and over and over again um My Fair Lady is even kind of in that 60s brown period mm-hmm. uh very mushy yeah, like and malleable uh-huh. kind of brown <laughs> like uh, yeah crunchy yeah. <laughs> It all looked like Fiddler on the Roof by it that did. point. Oh, Just kind of, yeah. yeah. Funny Girl, <laughs> Funny Girl is great. It even looks like Fiddler on the Roof. Just 
brown kind of stoops and staircases and stuff. Yeah. Um, well, I was wondering, did you have like a history or like a knowledge of Evita before this? Uh, no, my entire knowledge of Evita is based on uh, my knowledge of Madonna. Right. And Madonna <laughs> is the number one most impactful artist on my entire life um, from the very first movie I recall seeing in a theater, um, which was Dick Tracy. Uh, which I'm convinced turned me homosexual because mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I was like three years old and the first thing you know how all movies are terrifying if you're a kid it's just such an intense sensory psychedelic experience yeah. it's like a drug the first thing I see on the big screen uh, 30 feet tall is uh, like Madonna in a in a see-through top with like a big peekaboo hole over the you know singing sooner or later whatever and then yeah. I was obsessed with Madonna after that my mom hated her boomer mothers all hated Madonna <laughs> and just thought she was a pig um oh my gosh. and uh it, but I was like fascinated I thought she, she like represents she was like this pagan idol that represented like this evil that would lure me over to the dark side especially in like the erotica period where she got explicitly kind of scary um but mm. yeah and I in that way that kids mix up uh, things and kind of like figure out the world on their own. I thought Marilyn Monroe and Madonna were the same person. Um, so if I would see, a I did of too. Monroe, I, yeah, I know it's because like their names sounded the same, or they both were like pasty and wore makeup. But well, yeah, and especially in the sex book, they look. Uh -huh. There's yeah. a lot of images that harken back to that time. Yeah. Yeah, I remember being at like a used car dealership as a small kid, and there was like a cardboard stand-up of Marilyn Monroe, and I said Madonna. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, well, I I actually like I have no like long history. Like I always knew about Evita just like in my peripheral, but I recently watched Evita with Madonna and I actually thought she did like an incredible job. Like we we both like really loved her Evita in the movie. Had you seen it before? I had never seen it before, but it was weird. And I do think like this. I don't know what I was expecting, but what I really got out of it was that it, it's a really psychedelic uh, movie oh, yeah. with the like cocked, um, tilted camera shots and like just like those long, like drawn out, like where things are look like they're almost about to like turn upside down. Like it was almost like nauseating, but like in a positive way. And I just I appreciated Madonna's Evita because it was just you know, very, it was more gentle and soft than like a Patti Lapone, uh, Evita. Yes. Yeah, mm -hmm. totally. And this, uh, psychedelic is the perfect word. Um, I saw it originally when it came out on video, video as a kid, cause it was like a massive event thing that everyone talked about at that time. And it was being promoted everywhere. Um, and there was this like palpable tension everywhere in pop culture because Madonna was so hated mm -hmm. at that time and this was like the culmination of her uh big image overhaul overhaul where she was uh, doing something more mature after like five straight years of sex 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 and mm -hmm. people were totally sick of it and people hated Madonna and basically her only fan base at that point was like hardcore gays yeah. um uh, but I saw it once then I saw it another time on video probably like 15 years ago but I'm glad I had to watch it again for this because I did not remember did not remember it that well and I probably never would have sat down to watch it ever again because it is 
uh, totally a slog, but it's it a slog that I love. And I, yeah. I haven't, I have an intense affection for it. It's, um, it's not a pleasurable viewing experience. No. <laughs> <I don't think>. <laughs> <laughs> it's total torture the whole time, but it's so interesting. And um, it's like double and triple dated in all of these uh, very interesting ways, because you can tell that it's an old project that mm -hmm. had been getting uh, tossed around uh, from developer to developer for several decades at that point. Mm -hmm. Like the original play was what, 78? Right. Um, yes. And all the music is 70s rock opera, like prog rock sounding. I said the same dated. thing. Oh yeah. my gosh. I don't know what it is about Andrew Lloyd Webber, but whenever he writes rock music, it just sounds like a, an idea of what an old man during that time thinks rock music is. Like, oh, rock music isn't isn't I can write that it's just people talking right with some like guitars you know it's just like a weird like anytime he writes rock music it just sounds like some old guy's idea of what rock music like exactly like the prog rock that's exactly what I got out of like, and you can't take it out yeah. of the 70s like that no. that specific sound is will forever be like Jesus Christ superstar yeah 19 yes it, it basically like, imagine yeah. even in like 78 this would have been kind of a sort of dated sound yeah <laughs> so so doing this in the late 90s as this massive like event movie clearly intended to be like the masterpiece of all time that draws in the entire world You're and has right. this this hypnotic effect on the world which you know it was a sizable hit uh but it, but it didn't do what something like titanic did which hypnotized the entire world successfully Right. Uh, it, like this feels more like uh, Michael Cimino's Heaven's Gate, which is always talked about as like the biggest uh, Hollywood disaster that ended the new Hollywood era. Mm -hmm. um, have either of you seen that? I've never seen. I've heard no. about it. In, like, it's really length. interesting. Yeah, I love it. Yeah it's, yeah, it's four hours long. It's brown. It's expensive, has <laughs> massive, inscrutable crowd scenes, much like this. Um, yeah. but it doesn't like come together as inter like cohesive entertainment. It's right. just all very interesting. <laughs> yeah, it's like spliced together uh like different combinations of scenes, and you kind of get the idea that okay, we're we're gonna shoot this and then we're gonna just like paste it all together. It's gonna be the big event, it's like the big thing. And then it just ends up looking at like this like very brown conglomerate of random acting and like sound that's all over the place. And it was originally supposed to be Ken Russell in yeah. the 70s. So it would have been, if it had been Ken Russell, it would have been more like Tommy, like even more leaning into the psychedelia and he wanted Liza Minnelli to do it mm. um that would have made kind of made more sense than uh when it eventually happened where it's uh it, it, interestingly dated in all of these different ways yeah this movie almost uh sort of reminded me of the um movie about um but that have you seen that movie um with I think it's with Salma Hayek about Frida Kahlo it's really oh, yeah. dated oh, yes. but similarly very psychedelic and just very also very awkward and kind of just like 
you know, a little bojankety, um, but very strange, like in, in retrospective to, to view. That's totally <laughs> of this moment, the 90s Madonna moment, because yeah. the 90s was when uh, like uh, Frida Kahlo became this uh, kind of lib femme popular symbol that was ubiquitous everywhere in like bookstore art and everything. But Madonna always had her little set of like interests um, and it was like Evita and Frida Kahlo and Madonna tried to get the Frida Kahlo movie made mm -hmm. uh, several times as well. And it was always in development hell, I think. But yeah, it's, it's totally of that moment. Yeah. I love that Madonna campaigned for this role. Like, I just think that's so great. I, I love a woman who just demands she must be hired. And the way that it works, um, so Madonna, like she's one of the most fascinating women ever on camera mm -hmm. and her relationship with the camera is so intuitive. It's like a, a silent film star. And the, mm -hmm. the, the her yes. greatest achievement is her music videos of the late right. 80s and early 90s. Um, but beyond Desperately Seeking Susan, where she's playing herself as the the spunky New York bohemian street wave, um, and she's really cute and like natural in that, all of her experiments with acting have been very stilted. She appears mm -hmm. terrified by the camera and super self-conscious and controlled. And it's so strange because when she's like not speaking lines, it unlocks this magic, like in the open your heart video, or the express mm -hmm. yourself video. Yes. It has this, this silent movie magic, but then Shang one after another, Shanghai surprise, who's that girl, body of evidence. Um, she's disastrous, interesting, but disastrous in all of these movies. And here they find a way to use her uh, because she's not speaking lines. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, so it, at that point, it was um, everybody was kind of happy that she'd successfully found some way to be in the movies, <laughs> despite, the, despite this, yeah. this hang up, this inability to act naturally. Mm -hmm. Although they like that. they like floated Meryl Streep for this role. And I'm like, what reality could that? ever happen like I could not imagine Meryl Streep ever doing Ava Perone oh no I mean it would have been like technically okay in that like assembly line efficient way that Meryl right. Streep everything is but it probably melodramatic just... and like you know she's just like very over gesticulative sometimes and like I don't know to me it just like wouldn't work yeah and the, a large part of the interest of this project is how it draws on Madonna's cultural baggage mm -hmm. because uh, clearly Madonna sees herself as Evita the entire yeah. story yes. of like a girl from nowhere who by the way uh, Madonna is one of literally the only famous people ever who came from nothing just from suburban nothing and did it all themselves and mm -hmm. you know she moved to New York famously slept her way to the top just like in this um, and inspired this like radical unprecedented global interest in herself in this like mm -hmm. multimedia narcissistic art project of creating herself where she's not the greatest singer she's not the greatest dancer mm -hmm. there's just something magical about her that people want to watch um so if it had been anyone else but madonna 
it wouldn't it wouldn't be the same movie because so much of this is about Madonna's self-actualization and also at that time she was so intensely bitter about uh people hating her Mm -hmm. uh, and turning on her for the sex book for erotica um so all of her songs at that time were very bitter and about how you've betrayed you know you the audience have betrayed madonna so she gets to enact her own death in the most like saintly way like like it's really camp uh yeah she really gets to kind of uh, use the avita character as a proxy for what how she what she really wants to say and how she really feels about her public image and i think you know it's like incredible how like just by her sheer sheer will she materialized herself as like a show-stopping starlet literally just by herself and out of nothing and I think like to me like looking back I'm like oh yeah Avita like it just makes perfect sense Mm -hmm. yeah she she like gave up uh promoting bedtime stories to do this film so I mean it it really did mean a lot to her and then you see like in the take a bow video a lot of like Ava Perone kind of imagery in my, oh yeah I've, I've noticed a lot recently she was well on her it. way to this image transformation she released the something to remember uh ballad compilation which when you become an old gay you start to really love it has that very like uh <laughs> mid-90s like kind of aidsy aidsy quality uh but that was uh november 1995 and then she did not one but two uh kind of proto avita bullfighter videos there was take a bow and then there was you'll Mm -hmm. see um Mm -hmm. and she'd uh, redone herself and after the kind of courtney love nose ring and slip thing of early bedtime stories she'd redone herself into this old hollywood glamour uh Mm -hmm. you know very um tailored kind of thing did you notice how pregnant she is in some of it yeah, I, I did know. notice she was that. Real pregnant. Yeah, she you can was. really tell. You can tell. Yeah, they're well, really trying to hide that with the boobs. Yeah, but it, it kind of like worked because she is mm-hmm. like so fruitful and lively and glowing on the screen. And oh my like God, yeah. just like the times where she's just like kind of floating in the background and like even when she's not singing, you can kind of like just see her like upstage everybody else just with her glow. Oh, well, she and- looks incredible yeah. <laughs> and and young um Ava Perone at the very beginning looks so much like Lourdes oh yeah That's she looks true. exactly yeah. like Lourdes yes yes yeah and you know any any attempt to be like uh put a modern uh woke lens on and be like this is problematic because Madonna is playing uh, and Argentinian, well, they all just look Italian and act Italian exactly. in this movie anyway. It's true. Yeah. It might as well be in Italy. Right. Italy has like fascists and everything too. So whatever. Yeah. Um, the Italians yeah. like in Argentina famously like hated the Perones because mm-hmm. like the Peronism was like so close to like Mussolini and like didn't have, they didn't have a, yeah. but yeah, <laughs> it was really funny. Like I was like thinking a lot about how like Juan Peron in a different way but also in a similar way uh is sort of was sort of like the trump character at the time because he just like left such an impactful mark on argentina in a way that they're still feeling today because he was like authoritarian but still extremely kind of like pro-worker and then on but still you know prioritized 
um, nationalism and political sovereignty. And that's really interesting. I think it, the Vita character is amazing because she like just comes in, she wants to be an actress and she's like, yeah, whatever, I'll just be a advertising to, you know, spread Peronism across the globe. I, I was really impressed uh being such a an idiot about history and everything that uh, you know at the ripe old age of 34 <laughs> i was able to coherently follow all of this because right when i pressed play i was like oh i'm in for a long run <laughs> like, yeah, as soon right. as i saw the like tanks and the explosions and the the sepia color i was like oh this right. is gonna go forever but <laughs> but by the by the time they reward you with the don't cry for me argentina right. <laughs> scene you're like okay i can go another hour and 15 minutes um but right. i did like follow it like perone's um kind of like transformation from like whatever right-wing populist to like left-wing right. worker as needed um kind of thing like they it's impressive how coherently they spend something so complicated and really such an obscure historical moment together in this. Yeah, it's so such a fascinating story. I'm like always uh, intrigued by the little uh, anecdotes and like historical suggestions from people. Uh, apparently, Eva Perón did have or her, med her medical uh, records did, did suggest that she had a lobotomy uh, shortly before <laughs> she, she died. <laughs> and uh, the- I thought you were gonna say right at the beginning before no, she goes to Brainus no. Oz. <laughs> when she yeah. starts singing that song after shortly, she Yeah, no, shortly before she died, it suggests her medical records suggest that she had a lobotomy. And the rumor is that uh, because she was so engaged with the public and she was like ordering uh, tanks and weapons to worker militias at the end of her life from her bed while she was sick uh you know Juan was like okay this girl needs to like calm down and like stop um so that's the rumor we don't know for sure but I mean I'd like to think I mean, that it was ordered by Juan because that was basically the purpose of the lobotomy at the time. that makes total sense yeah even so like um watching this all I could think was wow I can't believe how fashy this is in yeah. terms of all the imagery because her name is even Ava, okay? It, yeah. It, 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 yeah. It feels like there's like a gay, like Hitler, Ava, per Ava Brown kind of fascination right. there yeah. subtextually. And she, she, all the scenes, the massive uh, speech scenes where she's in these huge art deco uh, fascist looking sets, uh, Lenny Riefenstahl looking sets. Like it's very, just like, wow, this is really like a, gay fashy musical theater mood here yeah it is i i love how like the christian dior dress and like all the other extended like dior dresses and that aesthetic of the time is such a important yes. like symbol and like if you look at dior now it's just like so boring it's not like this couture like grand ball gown situation it's like very strange but it's a oh, good yeah. like all the fashion houses guess. are just like dubai mall they are dubai mall like cynical they have no like individual identity like the saddest one for me is like alexander mcqueen how after yes. his death it just exists as mm. this meaningless Downhill. label of just like nothing like there's nothing even Garbs, weird guess, about the clothes it's yeah just, like, tennis shoes you know um <laughs> very strange the, the fashion uh this um of particular interest to me this stole the record for most costume changes in one production 
from the story of my life, which is Judith Gould's Sins, the miniseries starring Joan Collins. It's five hours long from, I think, 1985, which previously held the record for most costume changes. Um, <laughs> this, this has even more. Wow, that's Only crazy. And, yeah, I, I mean, like, and I, I just love her, like, skinny eyebrows. Like, I really think it looks, like, perfect on her face structure and everything. And, like, just a, I've always, like, loved um, Madonna's nose. Like, I love, like, a strong nose on a woman and, like, She's probably like one of my favorite pop star noses that she oh, has. When you can see her old, her original head shape, which was yeah. so remarkable, which you can't see anymore because of plastic surgery and whatever she's done. But she has this like amazing, like heart shaped face. She does. You can see, yeah. especially when her hair is pulled back. Um, and the the black contacts aren't even that distracting. Like <laughs> the black contacts um i felt like i was getting lost yeah. yeah i was like getting lost in her like beautiful like vacuous eyes i was like i wanted to like dive into like her eyes and like it's very hypnotizing i think they're not like distracting i think they look really good and like yeah. her her face shape and her head shape it kind of allows her to go between uh looking very young but then also looking very old she can kind of play like anything and like transform into like any anything essentially Oh, and this this also does a thing that I love, which I wish more movies would still do, where an actress plays the same role without major like makeup alterations, age yeah. makeup, uh, different casting, whatever, for like several decades. So like 30, how old was she? 38 or something mm -hmm. here. 38-year-old uh, Madonna plays like 15 through 33-year-old uh, Ava. And in Sins, yeah. the movie I just mentioned, like 55-year-old Joan Collins plays like this character from like a teenager to yeah. like the age of 55. Yeah. And it's just like the, your suspension of disbelief uh, really like takes care of it. I feel yeah. like it like builds good faith with the audience where you're just like, okay, the star is here and she yes. is right. playing the teenager. I hope that she carries that into the biopic that she's going to make about her life. Like, I hope I'm that worried. she... she I, I know, I'm she's like She's having shaking. fun now, but... Yeah. <laughs> I don't. It'll be um, interesting for sure. I actually saw... I'm the only person on the entire world who saw both of the previous movies Madonna directed. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> Wisdom oh, yeah. and W. Uh, what is it called? W. E. The uh, yeah. Wallace Simpson costume drama. I saw it in the fucking theater. <laughs> they were and did it change your life? <laughs> um, no, just another interesting factoid. Uh, you know, uh, <laughs> yeah. in the in the ongoing Madonna saga. I know she does it all. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny, like my uh, my grandfather is a Protestant minister. He's always said that uh, like a the like a prayer video is his favorite video ever. He's like oh. obsessed with it. <laughs> I mean, I it like bring me to tears instantly. Yeah. Like the yeah. it, like I just see the word art in like neon letters because like <laughs> those peak Madonna videos, like a prayer, express yourself open your heart, uh, rain, um, just like nothing, like pop culture has never been art on that level since. Yeah, Papa Don't yeah. Preach is probably my favorite pop song yeah. I've ever written. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like, no, there's, there's so much drama in that song. Yeah. 
I I was watching that uh, interview with Patty Lapone today, where she was saying like, "Oh, Madonna, she <laughs> yes. she's horrible. She ruined Avita. Blah killer. blah blah. She's a movie killer." I'm like, okay, Patty Lapone, her voice literally sounds like a foghorn. Like she <laughs> has no room to talk. Like Madonna's voice sounds like so like gentle and like feminine, and, like just makes mo- way more sense. <laughs> And this was a new Madonna voice because she yes. famously all the press at the time at the time was about how she had gone through extensive vocal training and <laughs> like yeah. she developed this entirely new register of her voice, which previously everyone made fun of um, her limited vocal skills. Uh, like my friend put it to me like in the early days before everybody knew what Madonna looked like when it was just like Lucky Star playing on the radio, they thought she was an untalented black girl. Like just like (laughs) a kind of like untalented black girl singing disco, Um, like and the Minnie Mouse thing of like like a virgin era. But then this was her maturity where she became a mother. She Mm -hmm. got pregnant. She did this movie, was singing ballads. And then she did uh, Ray of Light, which was a massive success Mm -hmm. and still seems utterly cutting edge and could be put out today and would still sound better than everything else out there and it was the last time that you saw um this wonderful mature madonna where it was her real face and she had wrinkles Mm -hmm. and she looked stunning and she was only like 40 at that time and this period only lasted it quickly ended because of Guy Ritchie who mm-hmm. kidnapped her into England and she became quite uh it was a pretty bleak period the Guy Ritchie yeah. marriage but um she was a bit strange <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah it's just, yeah so there are several like faces during that era several mm-hmm. plastic surgery eras that are like who is this I know. <laughs> like very um, very strange and she like well she likes um she likes a domineering, uh, stupid man ordering her around. Like both of the men that she married mm-hmm. are these like tough guys, like Guy Ritchie and Sean Penn. And she still worships Sean Penn mm-hmm. <laughs> and like come, you know, wheels out and says something worshipful about Sean Penn every few years. Um, but yeah, she it's like she's such a such a powerful persona that she seems so attracted to these these dumb macho guys who can kind of keep her in line. Yeah, and it's like director and directors are like famously always like very horny and like staunchy and it, it just makes sense that she would be attracted to somebody like that. And then do like three bitter breakup albums about yeah. him. <laughs> but she really lucked out by getting Antonio Banderas as oh. her her and Che. That's a minor Madonna plot line because in uh, Truth or Dare, yeah, there's a, there's the scene where she's at the table and she's talking about you know the hottest guy is Antonio Banderas mm-hmm. from the Pedro Almodovar movies, and it's like his current wife at the time at the table or something, and um, uh, then later they get together for this, and wow, he I forgot just how stunning he was. He's his the eyes. best. I really his miss eyes him. Are just, oh. Like br- yeah. bring him back because he really blew me away. Like with I'd never heard him sing before, or if that's his real voice, but I, I was really impressed. And um, he was just like this was like a period like uh, okay nineties and early two thousands where he was like always the sort of uh, you know main guy in so many like every other movie and in romantic comedies as well. It's like where did he go? Like I think he owns like a a wine a 
like a wine company now like they all well, do, he but, married yeah. Mer- melanie griffith for a long time which is also right. connected <laughs> to madonna because madonna's first like sleek makeover she was totally imitating melanie griffith and body double like the open your heart look is totally stolen from body double uh, melanie griffith but um yeah i don't know where he went he's so like naturally charming i have to say uh a really uh well done creative decision in this was to not have him in the Che Guevara costume. Well, because the original Evita production has like a very Brechtian quality to it. There's a lot of like signs that come down and, you know, Che has like this very, um, yeah, militaristic working man kind of feel to it. And the movie really didn't, uh, thankfully didn't do that. But yeah, the original yeah. production is very Brechtian in that sense. Yeah, mm-hmm. it, the movie brought the musical theater campy aspect down a little bit more, which is really nice instead of like inflating it and making it like larger than life. It kind of stripped it down, made it like this weird, like brown camera cocked the right and left. And you're like being jerked around constantly with like different cuts. Um, that was like really, really nice and like very interesting. <laughs> And strange. <laughs> yeah, uh, Alan Parker was a good choice for this. I watched Fame for the first time not too long ago. And yes. have you seen Fame? Yes, we covered it yeah. on the pod. Okay, yeah, I was shocked by what that actually is because I thought it was like, you know, there was the TV show. I thought it was like yeah. the facts of life or something. It's like, I did too. Yeah. And it's, it's this dark, disturbing, like super like gritty, like documentary um, quality thing. Yeah. I was really impressed by it. And also I've always been a huge fan of Pink Floyd, The Wall, which is mm-hmm. one of the most disturbing mm-hmm. and upsetting movies ever made mm-hmm. and shares a lot with Evita in terms of its general uh, morose unpleasantness. Um but yeah, he's a, he's a good director. Yeah, it, it's really interesting. I always like, well, so I mean, Evita, she like, or Ava Perone, she died of like cervical cancer, but uh, Juan Perone's first wife, uh, she also died from uh, cervical cancer. And it was like so obvious that uh, Juan Perone definitely had HPV because he must have given it oh, to both of them. Yeah. He's just like the yeah. he literally a lady killer because he just like killed both of them with his penis. Oh my God. Yeah. yeah. And, but they transmute it into just the indefinable uh, fatal movie movie illness the terminal illness of yeah like terms, terms of endearment where right you know a beautiful woman just suddenly just is in a hospital dead. bed and she yeah. finds, yeah, suddenly. finds out she will die very yeah. unspecific unspecific reasons yeah <laughs> yeah and i love how um Ava kicks her out of the out of the room out of the out of the bed when oh, she yeah. like finally becomes uh Juan's woman I found it interesting that Madonna objected to the addition of You Must Love Me, which was written for this, but she didn't want it in there because she felt it made Ava unsympathetic. Um, because, of course, in her like Madonna brain, she's just like the meme of like the the goth girl saying she's literally me right you know (laughs) (laughs) she just wants her to be depicted as a saint she doesn't like get the larger like um you know she's this uh 
kind of fascist, narcissist, <laughs> all-consuming <laughs> entity. Um, uh, but she's, yeah, the, was... she's the Juan Peron of her own <laughs> cultural <laughs> artifacts, basically. Uh, you yeah, Must Love yeah. Me is like one of the best Torch songs ever written, though, I feel like. Oh, yeah, it's great. I mean, she got, they got the Oscar for it and she got to sing it at the Oscars. So I'm sure she was happy about it after the fact. And, um, and Lana covered it recently, not recently, but like oh, a few years ago. Yeah. What was that for? It was for, it was for like an anniversary of Andrew Lloyd Webber. Okay. Like celebrating him. I think for his like birthday, maybe. Do you like Andrew Lloyd Webber? Um, I don't know everything about him, but I do have uh, a definite fascination with it. I, I yeah. especially have a fascination with cats. Me too. Oh. So strange. Oh Josh, Josh is a cat's truther. I just like the dance <laughs> and that's pretty much it. It's, but yeah, very strange, random artifacts of the time. It, just I insane. Love, <laughs> yes. Yes. And I, I'm obsessed with memory specifically, which yes. is of course yes. one, one of the great uh, bitter old uh, gay songs. Yes. Um, and the Barbara Streisand verse, version on the al Barbara Streisand album Memory from like before the play came out where on the cover she like looks like weird and feline with these turquoise <laughs> eyes. I listen to that all the time. But my fascination with Cats uh, which has always been so hated, like since its inception, like there was mm -hmm. never a moment, it seems, where like anybody was like really uh, positive about cats, even though it was making all of this money. Um, I just love the idea of people going uh, downtown in gritty 80s crime riddled New York uh, to the yes. Winter Garden Theater, mm -hmm. like. <laughs> like hookers and syringes everywhere to see that thing i know <laughs> and, out of everything my, like <laughs> my boyfriend actually got to see it in like 1989 and 1990 and describes his entire family hating it and i ask him about it all the time <laughs> like i'm so jealous that you got to see it like when new york was still a shit no i had like the vhs version of it and i it both scared me traumatized me, me but also like it gave me so much life like the dance and like the acrobats are like so good, like memory is amazing. And we're all gonna like grow up to be like old and gay and like singing that in like the back of our heads. Like when we're like 85 Burnt or out ends of smoky days. Yes. yes. I've been watching um, the like old commercials for Cats on YouTube incessantly mm -hmm. where it's just like Cats, the award-winning family <laughs> musical and just makes it look so cryptic and horrifying. It, it just shows you like a little, a little bit of, you know, the, Grizabella or whatever on that like yeah. UFO thing like lifting yeah. up and you're like this seems so evil whatever this yeah. is the phone number to call to get tickets they did an anti-smoking commercial that is amazing to watch people should YouTube that it's really an Andrew yeah. Lloyd Webber anti-smoking commercial I know right <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> strange um well, Jack I love um that you I love the uh, in Indira Gandhi um, uh, yes. parody oh that you sent. Oh. Yes, that's from SCTV. Yes. Um, SCTV is like, like if you try to watch old SNL, it's really yeah. difficult. It's like not funny at all. Like I, I had like the first season set. It's a, it's a slog, and it's only like of historical interest. Um, but SCTV is, is like the Canadian one where 
like basically everybody Catherine O'Hara Eugene Levy Andrea Martin John Candy yes. Martin Short all those people came from it and it still kills me like um but the the Andrea Martin uh Indira Gandhi commercial uh it, the way that they ape that specific commercial so so perfectly it's, perfect. it's um, like on the nose yeah. like verbatim and is exactly basically uh, like rings true to like what the broadway musical is with like the don't cry for me argentina song and just like it's just very on the nose and very perfect and SCTV, well. like everything that they, like the whole idea of the show is that they have this like cheap uh network so they're all doing like uh kind of off-brand lame little public access versions of popular things so like their version of Evita is just in Tira Condi like the like the fake off-brand version and what does it say it's like at the Toronto Civic Center right. you know, it's yes. some depressing, <laughs> depressing place like so crazy um but yeah I don't know this um I would never I don't know I I since I was never familiar with the actual musical I was like doing a lot of research on um like the Patti LuPone version and I don't know why but it's like for some reason this character just doesn't come off to me as like a Patti LuPone character since she's so like hit or miss and she's like got that like gigantic brawling uh foghorn voice that like sounds like an avalanche and i'm just like dear god like i don't know like madonna's voice is just like very timeless to me yeah it's it's really unexpected that madonna makes this role soft and uh gentle and pretty because you know madonna especially at that, that time was considered the opposite of soft and the whole uh the whole marketing impetus behind it, which was to win over people who had hated Madonna mm-hmm. for so many years for her antics, it did work. Cause I remember like at the time my my mom conceding finally, oh, I she is pretty in that. I like when she, she truly is an artist. Argentina. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that that this thing was repeated uh in a kind of hollow way with Lady Gaga's yeah, career trajectory. Yeah. Where uh after art pop everyone was like sick of her hypersexual decadent antics and so they very quickly pulled an Evita thing where they you know put her on the put her on stage at the Oscars to sing the sound of music um in those red gloves and everybody who hated Lady Gaga then goes oh that was pretty that yeah. was so nice. She's, that nice. she's truly like a fully like so sophisticated <laughs> yeah. artist. I like, like she's not weird anymore. Yeah, and then that she's kicked a off person. this like really, really, you know, I detest that period of Lady Gaga's career where it's uh, like Joanne and uh, A Star is Born and yeah. all of this stuff. But Evita's Madonna did it first and did it way more interestingly. <laughs> well, yeah, and like Evita very much has a Stars Born storyline. So like in that sense, they both did their own Stars Born, but like Evita is much more powerful. And they yeah. both put out bitter, bitter ballads about how you have failed them, you the audience. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yes. Lady Gaga put out a bunch of those. Million just, reasons, yeah. 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 <laughs> it's like always like oh I'll show you like I'm I'm like growing up but I think for Madonna it's like it was a much more interesting feat of an advertising campaign for her own like coming out because she was like 
you know, coming into her own um, new phase of her life at that time, like she was kind of like a little, she was starting to age just slightly. So I think she just wanted to, you know, show people that, you know, she, she could really do it all. And like she had and she continues to have everybody like wrapped around her finger because she just posits herself in control of and everything that comes out of her. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it also you- like the, the Madonna trajectory happened over like a much longer period of time. Like the Lady Gaga transformation into the you must love me Oscar winner thing. Right. Like that happened really quickly. It was over like yeah. three years, but it, it like everything is so telescoped and like small now and the cultural memory is so short. That, but yeah, the Madonna, her hypersexual period was like literally like five or six years of constant escalating pornography (laughs) that was why people were so sick of it by the end yeah and then this was this transformation was over like three years I guess right everything has like such a short cultural turnover time it's like I wake up one day and it's like oh Lady Gaga's a person like it's just it's very strange (laughs) Uh what do you think of the music in Evita um Let's see, my experience last night watching it, the first five to 10 minutes, I was like, oh no, oh no, no, no. Um, and then, I, because there's that, I forgot that this was a musical where they don't talk, where the whole thing is singing. I know, yeah. Um, and, uh, but after like 10 minutes, I, I was pretty immersed in it uh, and I got used to it. Um, the... I love the music. I mean, I love the constant uh, repetitions of the the Don't Cry For Me Argentina and uh, the Where Will I Go From Here? Mm -hmm. You know, the the Uh, the suitcase and another Mm -hmm. wall. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Uh It's very effectively done. But, you know, what the whole audience is waiting for, they give you at the midpoint, which is the the Don't Cry For Me Argentina, (laughs) the balcony scene. Yes. I was just waiting, waiting the whole time for it. It's like, where is it? It's like the grand, the grand of the main event. It's like the the chandelier falling at uh, the Phantom of the Opera. Like you're just waiting (laughs) the whole time for it. Because like the majority of like the action that happens is like, okay, like now we're going to another place and now we're going on our tour and now we're doing this. You're just kind of waiting for the grand finale where she like, falls mysteriously ill and then you know she's like on the balcony in the dress the, and everything her um fame period that's probably my favorite section of the movie where she's mm-hmm. going around uh erecting all the monuments to herself with the charities yeah. and everything and just, <laughs> yeah that, Ava, that's one of the like fascist moments where it feels really like hitlerish where it's just all of these massive art deco buildings being erected with her name on them for like vague purposes of like it's, helping children it's just yeah. photo ops of her kissing babies and different outfits <laughs> and yeah that's it's that's like a really more of me everywhere <laughs> And then they start to question uh, whether she's actually going to bring about uh, the socialist utopia. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. And like, that's what is so great about the Che character that he's like constantly like looming and like he's constantly like um, unsure of what her motives are because he knows that she's an actress, that she's yeah. constant, like she's constantly performing. He doesn't know what the the truth is. Um, I yeah, feel like I, if- I like um, the the. I actually love the the funniest part of the movie is like the opening where she like 
it's revealed that yeah she eventually dies and then you just see Antonio Banderas is like it's a story like any other just another girl who's an actress like as soon as like yes. the movie opened I was cracking up because it's like very perfect oh god and you know it's gonna be such a long ass time I know for the balcony <laughs> scene with these here as a kid you're like oh god how many I how know. many hairstyles will I have to still go through until <laughs> yeah. we get to the balcony <laughs> Well, and like, um, if Juan Perón is Trumpian, I feel like um, Che is very much like Pepe, like constantly like commenting and like- <laughs> Yeah, and that I is true, like, yeah. That's a good and I yeah. Feel, and, I, and I feel like um, if, cause we're gonna talk about Hillary Clinton at some point, <laughs> um, and we might as well just bring it up now, um, uh, that I think if they ever make a musical about Hillary Clinton, that it should be narrated by Pepe. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, that's a great idea. Narrated by Pepe the Frog from the <laughs> Basket of Deplorables. Exactly. <laughs> uh-huh. It would be she, e- I, very equally, like very psychedelic. <laughs> exactly. But I, be, I feel like yeah. no musical theater writer would catch on to that, I feel no. like. Well, the only, it's fitting that you sent this Camille Paglia article about Hillary because she's the only person who has ever um, accurately remarked on how glamorous a figure Hillary is because straight mm-hmm. people don't get it. Straight people, they either worship Hillary and like the libtard kind of, you know, yeah. they think she's like a, a real hope for democracy or whatever. Or in that way, or they uh, just absolutely hate her. Like boomer mothers hate Hillary and just find mm-hmm. her the most like disgusting figure. She's a war uh, criminal. <laughs> oh yeah, they they just hate her. Like nobody hates her more than like middle aged mm-hmm. uh, women who lived through the nineties. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've always had an affection for Hillary, and I thought she was quite glamorous. Her um, her really transparent makeovers to feminize her which are detailed in this article in the early 90s because like in the 80s she was a total like brunette frump Mm -hmm. with these big thick glasses and like a brown perm yeah very swirly hair yes and then they did an Evita first lady makeover where they dyed her hair blonde you know gave her this big bouffant blonde hair Polya says in some other article that she started wearing like partial like blue contacts mm-hmm. um i don't know the truth <laughs> of that um but if you look at pictures of like high 90s hillary she looks pretty incredible she was also wearing mm-hmm. terry mugler angel at that time um so she just yeah. a big glamorous perfume <laughs> yeah she she wore uh angel and then didn't she also wear like bijan <laughs> yeah there's like, like those yeah. like janky internet lists of what celebrities wear yeah. i hope it's true that she wore angel at some point um, I but, definitely yeah I, that checks out yeah during the like um just imagine her reeking of angel while talking about the vast right-wing conspiracy uh <laughs> what a glittering image but i also thought she was she looked fantastic in 2016 like they what they did to her uh they created these sculptures of her hair these yes sculptures of her hair and people always talked about her like she looked like such trash but i love the chairman mouse suits i i love whatever they did on her hair the red lipstick like it was sophisticated 
until the total collapse where uh after he won the next morning she came out like <laughs> looking like the crypt keeper on purpose of course mm -hmm. for sympathy um she looked fantastic because mm -hmm. she I knew she was gonna win yeah <laughs> right she knew I once dated a guy that had a portrait of Hillary Clinton on his wall oh, no. that was a, oh, a Maoist no. style uh, portrait and like I burst out laughing the first time I saw it and he like didn't realize why I so found it. So what are you funny, laughing at? <laughs> I know he was he you like he funny? was one of those he was one of those like libtards that like really thought that like Hillary was like the real deal. Oh so, yeah, they would be mad. That type would be mad about how I appreciate Hillary for the wrong reasons. But those people increasingly all hate her now. So mm -hmm. like she very quickly fell out of favor with the sincere libtards as a symbol because like the dirtbag, I started liking her like meme potential mm -hmm. after she, after hating Hillary Clinton became a kind of signifier for dirtbag leftists who were like, I'm not like the other libs. Right. Um, I hate right. warmonger Hillary Clinton. And I was like, no, the warmonger part is what's that, cool about yeah, her. That was what, they, what they tamped down for the 2016 election to try to make her into this very cynical uh, version of like modern feminist woke, whatever, that clearly, you know, everybody could sense that it was not real. But the most appealing Hillary is the one that is just you know laughing about bombing people at that the, yeah <laughs> that's like, the best. like like that's appealing yeah. that honesty is appealing to me yeah um and yeah. it has that kind of hard edge of like when women had to actually enter the workplace when it was a man's world in the 70s and like be one of the guys and be tough um like i find that admirable but yeah. by 2016, you know, they're just parading her around as this kind of like Hamilton thing. And she's saying these hashtags about feminism and it's, it's repellent, the whole spectacle. Yeah, her, her gift is really not, is not in the frantic over-emotional investment. She kind of fails to instrumentalize that very well. And it's not something that she's particularly talented at. Like she's really good with like the low interpersonal sensitivity and she's just got fervent like cunning ambition that you cannot replicate it's like that's really kind of how you craft like this unpenetrable persona that's like very staunch and stone-like and I'm like yeah it like really does make you believe I'm like yep guess you're a powerful person <laughs> yeah and the thing about her also is to me she's genuinely funny yeah. like yes the, when she goes off script, just chilling in oh. cedar rapids oh, and all I think the about awkward, that every like, day I, I, there's that like 10 hour loop of just chilling on in cedar rapids yeah. <laughs> i'm just chilling in cedar rapids like, and and also the basket of deplorable speech like legendary yeah. like imagine this this woman like that period is so like perfectly crystallized in my mind is the most interesting moment of pop culture uh, like ever because here you have her uh, you know these two like Godzilla versus Mothra like entities from the 80s and 90s battling in this like super campy way mm -hmm. and her coming to the podium and talking about the, the deplorable alt-right and Pepe the Frog like yeah. it's so funny <laughs> yeah like she's so insanely overprepared anytime she does go off script it makes you so happy it, it's like oh my god like this weird uh you know gap between like her private uh personality and her humor and her public 
persona and like when they start to come together and mesh you're like oh my god it's happening like it it's really like a drag performance the like she's at her best when you can see the strings being pulled yeah so obviously like I didn't see it but from from what I understand she did one of those master classes recently yeah yeah uh, <laughs> about like how to be a failed president or something and they, they created a whole like a uh, soundstage set of like the oval office for her to like oh my this, God. Fake, this fake oval office she's sitting like selling you a master class after <laughs> you know losing the presidency like that's real yes. ice queen drag queen um, at camp excellence oh, she really had to like pull up her pants to do that <laughs> And well, and the major difference between like uh, Ava Perone and uh, Hillary is that in their choice of men, I think, because like Bill Clinton, as Pally describes in the article, is like very like he's he doesn't know how to be a man, you know. And whereas Juan Perone, I feel like did know how to be a man almost like too much of a man, you know. And um, and Hillary never could figure out how to like compromise that and deal with it. Yeah, Bill is very like soft and warm and kind of earthy. Mm-hmm. Uh, like he was a total counterpoint to her. Yeah, uh, her total like grade grubber, uh, you know, good girl energy. And she was, I maintain, she was always extremely beautiful. Like those pictures of yeah. her in the '60s mm-hmm. as a college student. I'm sorry if really that girl pretty, yeah. said one, you know, parroted one like based red pilled thing online, she'd be worshipped by everyone. Um, but she, as Polly says in the article, um, did not know how to integrate her beauty and her sexuality with her um, grade grubbing uh, careerist intellectualism. And so you don't really see her being glamorous again until the 90s, where they're just a team of gays is tasked with feminizing her to make yes. her more yeah. appealing and Rainbow not high. seem like a battle axe. You <laughs> yeah. know? And they dress her in pink suits all the time. Like Rush Limbaugh would al- always make fun of her uh, really hilariously. He would call her pink suits pretty and pink. Um, <laughs> Like, just just what's the most feminine thing we could put on her? Uh, blonde hair and a pink suit. Okay. Uh, well, and then they they put her on Rosie O'Donnell. Did you watch that? Oh yeah. <laughs> oh, that was amazing. Yeah, to sing, that was incredible. To sing Bye Bye Birdie. <laughs> oh my God! And Rosie's Rosie's downfall is so terrifying. I like clicked on Rosie's Twitter profile the other day, and I couldn't believe. <laughs> I felt like I'd clicked over onto the dark web or something. Yeah, she has this like scraggly gray witch hair, and it's all these close-ups of her like bursted blood vessel, angry face, and then like all caps tweets about Trump. You know, all twenty-four-seven so every day. She's, She's like so- terrifying. Like we we just did a we just did an episode where well oh it's coming out later this summer but she famously um, produced a jo- a boy George musical that was a huge flop and it cost like millions Taboo. of dollars. It was called Taboo and it was essentially to like distract her from like this horrible string of bad press she was getting and like she lost like millions of dollars. What year it. was that? This was 2003, yeah. Oh, so that that was when uh, she was kind of out in the process of outing herself. Yeah. So the kind of culture war over gay marriage was getting into full swing at that point. Because I remember them putting her, she was always on Nickelodeon. 
um, yes. in the 90s when she was America's sweetheart, uh, which is like unimaginable today because there was a full like 10 to 12 <laughs> years yeah. where where yeah America's sweetheart was Rosie O'Donnell <laughs> and beloved by everyone they made dolls of her she uh, Madonna has like a, a rich history of lesbian gal pals oh yes around Sandra Bernhardt was the first one uh Ingrid Casares was another Jenny Shimizu was another but Ro- Madonna had this friendship with Rosie all through the 90s that stemmed from a league of their own, which they acted in together. Um, yes. And that was like before Rosie was out. Like Ellen, um, Ellen was the scourge of the earth when she came out in 1997, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. And Rosie was safely in the closet for a while after that. And then as Rosie became more bitter and hated throughout the 2000s, uh, Ellen became America's sweetheart. Mm-hmm. So Ellen got the daytime show, which was a massive success. And everybody, all you know, everyone's mother was like, if I were a lesbian, I would love to be with Ellen. She's I know. <laughs> and, the, the ladies uh, love Ellen, strangely. Like they all just yes. flocked to Ellen in the early 2000s. <laughs> and then Rosie with her gray hag hair and ranting just insane the most insane lesbian bed death kind of ranting witch quality um which she's fully leaned into another uh most important uh hugely influential rosy moment for me which i think about all the time and watch on youtube all the time is when she got into the argument with Elizabeth Hasselbeck oh on the view oh, where she goes, remember. Watching. Yes. I where she's like breaking the fourth live. wall and she goes, yes. how they're going to report on it is fat, bitter, lesbian Rosie attacking <laughs> blonde, Christian, pretty Elizabeth. <laughs> I think that runs through my head all the time. But anyway, oh, that was the best. Like That was my favorite. Like all of these other like the view, the talk like now, like you just know like the whole of premise and franchise is just so they can like put a bunch of women that don't know what they talk they're talking about and like constantly talking out of their ass but like uh-huh. i don't know that specific yeah. cast of characters with rosie and with um elizabeth hasselback it was just like perfect and it was just like an end of an cosmic. era yeah. yeah it was cosmic yeah. and they had much more fervor and like they really it it wasn't like now it's like oh we're we're arguing too much time to go to commercial like it's getting too heated it's like oh no, no they like, encouraged that and yeah. that it was also just a genuinely different cultural moment because yeah. in the 2000s the masses admired elizabeth hasselbeck mm-hmm. uh, which now they don't promote any like squeaky clean blonde yeah. Uh, like that at all but in the 2000s Sad, people yeah. really loved her mm-hmm. and um so the this like uh, eternal feminine battle between fat bitter loud lesbian rosie and like perfect virginal christian elizabeth is is a really nice time capsule mm-hmm. <laughs> I, lo- I also love to watch um the camille paglia susan sontag interview oh, like yes. that was a comfort watch to me as well <laughs> mm-hmm. that one's good there's also uh, one of my favorites is this high 90s conversation between Palia and uh, Lauren Hutton mm-hmm. um, yes where it's like this craziest 90s jewel toned color palette and editing and Palia has gotten her full vamps and tramps glam makeover Mm -hmm. (laughs) so she has like big hair and she's wearing all this eye makeup and lipstick and she looks fantastic um there's a transcription of that in uh, vamps and tramps as well along with this hillary stuff yeah so many comfort moments 
Yeah, because Pally also calls Hillary like a Lady Macbeth type. You know, like mm -hmm. she's constantly behind the scenes doing all the doing all the work while Bill goes out and uh, is the face of it all. Yeah, Pally has a rich history of um, writing about Hillary for 30 years in Salon and everything. I think she was initially very early on in the 90s a Hillary fan, and then it became... Uh, yeah. a lot more antagonistic parallel to the antagonism of her relationship with Madonna mm -hmm. uh, where she um, after her initial uh, famous fervor of for Madonna as the future of feminism of, of pro-sex feminism she was kind of like um, brushed off and rejected by Madonna Some, Camille got <laughs> more and more bitter about her um, eventually uh, in one of my favorite uh, minor polya subplots, uh, long-term negging Madonna by championing this like Brazilian nobody named Daniela Mercury, um, saying that she's better than Madonna. But yeah, I digress. <laughs> <laughs> when did you first like come in contact with Palia? Um, I was 17 or 18. And I first heard of her from the commentary track she did for basic instinct which was wow. on the, the special edition dvd that they put out in i think 2002 and then i uh bought all three of the books from half price um read vamps and tramps and sex art in american culture very quickly and that was the first time that i felt like oh there's someone else like me mm -hmm. i had never felt right. this like miraculous moment to that degree ever I felt very uh, like very much of a misfit because even in the 2000s I could sense that I did not fit within the uh, daily show uh, libtard paradigm <laughs> that was being set up then mm -hmm. it's like there's something I really don't like about this and then yeah. with Palia uh, she maps out the world in such a way and uh, the history of art in such a way that uh, I felt like I finally understood everything and felt yeah. like represented I felt. by her views. <laughs> yeah, and like she gives you anthropological context. So like you're able to like latch on and like do a real good cultural study of like different times and place and different artifacts um, that are like extremely like accessible, but she was able to like just put it in like uh, into like combinations of words where you're like, is this? Uh, is this me like like somebody like gets it and like understands and like she's very ahead of her like in incredibly like, ahead of her time right and above all yeah. is her immense readability uh right. and this oh, is yeah. this is why she became such a pop culture phenomenon after sexual persona was released in 1990 and she became this like dominant talking head fixture of television in the 90s um because she was doing this massive uh history spanning intellectual project that was also funny and readable to anyone and free of uh byzantine academic jargon and um that of course angered all of the her fellow academics and is why that type of person is still so bitter about her to this day because they believe in the the structure of academia, academia where they're scaling this ladder, you know, like 
like the with Scientology, where you receive more and more information as you uh, put all this effort in and you pay more, you feed more money into the system, you're rewarded and you are uh, given the this esoteric language that only you, the high academic, have access to. And it's very and Talia dry. has always <laughs> been speaking to a general audience explicitly. Yeah. Like she made glittering images as an art book for regular people who listen to AM radio. Like that was her stated intent. Yeah, I always say like a good critic is not good until they're able to be entertaining themselves because i mean if you're like commenting on like cultural artifacts and uh entertainment and taking stock in that you should you know have the knowledge and like capability from studying everything to know how to be funny and entertaining and accessible to massive amounts of readers mm-hmm, mm-hmm. do you and think people that who are not funny are really angry about that yeah <laughs> <When> <laughs> so someone comes yeah. along steals the spotlight yeah. and can just de- defeat anyone witheringly in the way that Polya can because you know you watch one video of her and you get it because she explains mm-hmm. her entire thesis every single time because she's a, a teacher and she's a good teacher uh she has no snobbery about anything mm-hmm. um she's always speaking to new people and explaining her entire thing and and um you can sense, you can just sense that she's this wonderful, um, warm, hermaphroditic mm-hmm. entity uh, who is on the side of good, always. Mm-hmm. Do you think that you'll ever want to write a book like Sexual Personae? Oh, I would love to. I mean, it won't, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be, you know, nothing anyone did now would be as in-depth as that and also it took her 20 years to write right. that mm-hmm. that's another thing that's uh, inspiring about her story is that uh sexual persona was her graduate thesis in 1972 or thereabouts and she tinkered with it and uh kept shopping it around to different publishers for two decades um floundering in obscurity as a teacher at the philadelphia arts college or whatever Mm -hmm. and then it finally was put out and it became this unprecedented uh pop culture success um it's one of the strangest success stories of all time and yeah i would like a a physical literary representation of everything that i do and all of my ideas uh someday hopefully but it it won't be that good (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> one day, um, one day, I like I predict that there's going to be this huge swath of new jobs created for women. That's just a uh, podcast transcribing, and like that would be mm. something I would love to do. I would love to just like listen to people and like type down words. <laughs> oh right, to Red yeah. Scare all the time. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> the um, my initial idea for the book was just transcripts of every Mm -hmm. single episode but that was way back in like season two even then even then it was like uh too large a project to conceivably do um but right now my sexual persona is is the podcast yeah the perfume nationalist so it's it's on audio but i'm happy there's something there's you know 200 something hours of me uh, talking about art and pop culture in that that way (laughs) 
Yeah, definitely. I was just thinking I need to get a, um, a hard drive because I'm starting to accumulate, accumulate so much information on my tiny, like, bojankity little MacBook Air. I'm, I'm just like, <laughs> this is this is taking up so much space. Like, at, at least, like, there, there must be, like, something I can, like, put. I will have a, you know, a external hard drive. Like, doesn't look good, but, you know, maybe one day I can, like, compile uh, something into something like more like legible or like beautiful looking <laughs> right I, yeah. I definitely want some sort of transmutation of the podcast format yeah. into an old school book right physical yeah. object just for the hell of it yeah um and for people to be able to see a different angle to the project yeah. Yeah, because like a lot of people, they will have their video paired with their podcast. And I'm just like, I don't want to see that. Like, I already see video constantly on a, on a day-to-day basis. Like, constantly my life is like filled with moving pictures. Like, the audio experience exclusively gives like a much more psychedelic and really like out-of-body experience. Like, you just have people talking in your heads. Totally. Yeah. And I'm, uh, I'm pretty fanatical um, anti video for podcasts, like yeah. I'll do it yes. for other people's shows if they want me to. I don't like it because I just find it really distracting. Um, and I think it decreases the quality of the conversation because I'm just focused on like whether there's something like on my nose or my mouth or yeah. like <laughs> just yes. gazing narcissistically yeah. at my own image I'm like oh look um, at my lip liner it looks so good <laughs> i know and also um uh like i've always believed in having a streamlined pro- product where it's not overly confusing like a lot of kind yeah. of internet content creators spread themselves thin over like five million different formats but I've always liked just having one feed where we put out one or two episodes a week um and it's a simple process of seeing what to listen to uh but yeah I I fucking hate video podcasts uh like what I can't think of a what kind of situation someone would be in where they can watch and listen to that because like the the appeal of radio is that you can put it on while working or doing something else like that's how rush limbaugh functions that's how am radio functions um but if you're like distracted by this like video that you're supposed to watch it's it's, like defeats the purpose i think there should be a certain amount of of kind of auditory boredom for like submersion into the product Definitely. Yeah, Thaddeus Russell is probably the only one that I trust who does. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's the only uh, one I can talk to where I forget that I'm on video. Mm-hmm. Um, right. But I've had many. Yeah, there's a lot of other ones where uh, I'm just like, oh, this is just an unnecessary addition to this. <laughs> yeah. Like this video needs to be edited out. The one, the one thing about it is that uh, if you do, if you record with video, then no one's talking over each other um but i don't mind the talking over each other i just like uh, surrendering to the the black podcast phone call void yeah it's very cozy feeling it just like (laughs) feels like a phone call but i'm not like walking around like holding something it just like feels like i'm enveloped in this like black void of comfort and coziness (laughs) i don't know why right (laughs) yeah um Mm -hmm. 
Jack, uh, what is the, I, this just popped into my head. <laughs> what, what is the theater scene like in Austin? I have literally no idea, but I bet it's really gross. Um, right, an experiment. Like my last, like, pl- let's see, I saw a production of uh, like Chicago <laughs> in like 2005 and then like Phantom of the Opera. This is like uh, the UT, <laughs> UT campus or something. Mm-hmm. Oh, nice. Um, but no idea. Um, the last plays that I did, uh, I was like 19 or 20 um and there's like a summer stock like Shakespeare uh, thing that I did which was fun but um literally no idea I imagine a lot of those people like they're always movie productions Mm -hmm. here taking place at like Austin Studios like Robert Rodriguez and stuff imagine a lot of those like local theater people end up as like uh tragic bit actors in a lot of those movies right. but yeah, yeah, yeah they're like playing dead people. bodies in the <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah playing a dead body and you know the tragic friday the 13th reboot or whatever yeah, a burn victim or something mm-hmm. um well i mean i Thank, thank you so much for coming on our podcast. This was like really, really lovely. Uh, any yeah. more thoughts about Evita or Madonna? Uh, no, it was a pleasure. I'm yeah. really glad I um, got the opportunity to uh, experience Evita again. Yeah. And I, I uh, watched the whole thing without looking at my phone, which wow. um, I uh, that's can't so believe. That's so yeah, I that's like just how bad something. Twitter is right now. <laughs> but yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, the whole thing. Watched it without looking at my phone. Um, it triggered a lot of memories of when I originally watched it as a kid and how I had literally no idea what was going on. Um, <laughs> yeah. Just except that there was Madonna there and there was some sort of emotion being conveyed on the balcony and that I generally liked it. Yeah. Um, but I was impressed by it. The the datedness of the music is what makes it especially interesting because mm-hmm. they would never do something with this kind of uh, Jesus Christ superstar type uh, high 70s uh, progressive rock. Yeah, <laughs> like, it's, it's just so like weird a, that they did it even then. Yeah, it's a weird genre of music that probably will never come back. Yeah. It's just so yeah. random. It's a very random genre of music. And I just like well, it forever exist in this time period. I feel like if this were done a few years later, then they would have altered the music radically so that it was more yes. like sweeping yeah. orchestral. Because yeah. like when Lord of the Rings came out, um, everything became basically the Lord of the Rings soundtrack, just conventional, yeah. uh, big orchestra um, instruments, whatever. Um, my music terminology is so bad, but this came at this weird spot in 1995, 96, where they were like, okay, let's just use the original 70s prog rock soundtrack, even though this is supposed to be this massive global production featuring Madonna. And, uh, yeah, that makes it so much more interesting in hindsight. Yeah. Yeah. And now we have like Diana the Musical, which apparently is supposed to be really good, but 
we'll are, there, see. are there any good musicals from the last like 15 years the last um musical i really liked was chicago and that was like 2003 um yeah. legally blonde the musical yeah Maddie, i think legally was probably blonde. the last good mm-hmm. american musical yeah yeah mm-hmm. But that's really it. Nothing, I mean, nothing's really good like in the last 15 years. It's sort of like a weird uh, kind of decaying medium, but that's what makes it really interesting because whenever it materializes itself, you're like, what the hell is happening? Who asked for this? (laughs) I feel like it's a right moment to uh, dive into this Andrew Lloyd Webber stuff because Andrew Lloyd Webber, Tim Rice stuff, because it's kind of perennially uncool in a way mm-hmm. that makes it appealing. Like you can just approach it with fresh eyes because mm-hmm. everybody kind of has a certain feeling of revulsion at yeah. like cats and fan of the opera and Jesus Christ superstar. Um, but there's so much there and you just, you realize um, how you take for granted these things that are so bizarre and high concepts, like, the fact that Cats is like based on T.S. Eliot poems, the fact that Evita, which everyone thinks of as just Don't Cry For Me Argentina, is this like fucking Brechtian uh, kind of fascist, <laughs> high intellectual, <laughs> like weird experimental thing. Um, what's considered like the best one or the most like fully realized or popular one oh. of their musicals? God. I mean, there's mm. so I mean, there's so many out there. Like, there's your Phantoms. There's Rent. you know, there. I mean, Rent was a huge one. And like, uh, yeah, early two thousands, like late nineties was like Rent is like a huge like the the Rent heads. And then like later in the mid two thousands, there was Wicked. Wicked was like a huge like completely took the country yeah. by storm. And now we're sort of in the Hamilton age, um, which is. I, I don't know. I, I saw it and I really didn't like it. Um, so, but yeah, I don't know. There's so many, well, because they're so grand and sweeping and it's a huge, insanely expensive, almost to the point of being egregiously wasteful. Um, every single like theater production, a theater oriented live uh, musical performance, anything, it sort of all stands on its own as being like existing in its own chasm of living and existing in real life and people walking away with saying like this is the best this is the best musical ever like they all just <laughs> exist on on their own as like their own perfect worlds it's so weird mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah there's there's something that feels safe about uh fiddling around with these musicals to me <laughs> because i I don't have like any um, strong cultural associations with them right now. Like they seem so uh, firmly rooted in the past and they've been replaced by this, you know, whatever wicked Hamilton trajectory. None of it. I don't know about any of that stuff. I haven't seen any of it. Like I avoided wicked, like the plague um, when it was happening. (laughs) Cause all all those, uh, the uh, musical theater and show choir uh, closet cases they loved it. in high school they loved they Wicked love it. I was like oh please they can't no. get enough I know yeah. <laughs> um, so strange so but yeah I you know when it was just a, a bizarre high concept uh, intellectual exercises like this from the 70s and 80s mm-hmm. I'm, I'm pretty into it yeah um, Godspell oh. is like a show that like is one of my favorites because it is 
probably the most like similarly to Jesus Christ Superstar, except a little less of a slog. Um, it's like this, just this weird kind of like hacked together a clown people they just like dancing around and singing about the gospel of matthew it's set to rock music oh yeah it's like one of my just one of my favorite like movies i so haven't strange. seen that one oh, that it's reminds crazy. me something something i totally did not know about evita was that it was uh just a recording first before right yeah. the play mm-hmm. that the, it, it was just like a concept mm-hmm. album that's how jesus christ superstar started as well yeah i had mm-hmm. no idea about that Strange. I guess also another big of the last musicals was uh, The Producers, which I was in in high school. Oh, right, right. That's a fun one. Mm-hmm. It really is. Yeah. That's the only like movie musical I ever really liked. Like the, I thought The Producers movie with Uma Thurman was actually like really fun. I've seen it several times. <laughs> I never saw the 2000s. I, I only saw the original. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's the the fact that that was very popular in the 2000s makes sense. It wouldn't, yeah. people uh, would not be able to f- understand why springtime for Hitler is yeah. funny right now. And I, I don't, no. I don't think exactly. audiences are sophisticated enough to, <laughs> to understand why that's funny. Right. Um, <laughs> um, but well, thank you so much. Yeah. Uh, yeah, this is delightful. Yes, absolutely. Have, um, well, everyone go subscribe to the Perfume Nationalist Patreon and, um, you know, support. And yeah, Jack, have a great rest of your night. Thanks so much. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> <laughs>